The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, it's easy to hear the judgment of Babylon, the very system and structure in which we live, and not hear. I ask that you would, with your Holy Spirit, do that which only you can do, and that's take hearts and minds that maybe have been numbed by the weak, desensitized to the evil and the destruction and the sin that we see about us, and then not hear this with all the weight and majesty that you intend. I ask, Father, that you would, by your Spirit this morning, make us awake For those of us who are continuing in willful, unrepentant sin, that we would come out of that this morning, that we would see the very real danger of staying and living as citizens of Babylon, even if we profess Christ, that you might be glorified in the redemption of our souls and glorified in our holy living. Father, as we reach chapter 18 in Revelation, we've heard this warning before, I ask that you would strike it new in our hearts. That maybe we would hear for the first time the majesty and glory of your holiness and your judgment and the great danger of remaining citizens of this world. Show us that, Father. Show us the grace of Christ and the work of the cross that enables us to come out, to come all the way out and live as your chosen people. I ask you would do that, Father, this morning for your glory above all else. We will benefit, surely, but for your glory we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. I rarely put an exclamation point in the title of a sermon, but this one deserves it. Um, We are called to come out of the, the city of man, the city of Babylon, the prostitute, the harlot, there are lots of names that we have in the book of Revelation, for her. Um, But we see it and we experience it every day, so it's not something foreign to you. Maybe God, through John, is revealing to you um, how bad and how ugly it truly is. Forty million Americans still smoke. I'm not going to be talking about the evils of smoking. Forty million Americans still smoke after decades of the government trying to post warnings not to smoke. Forty-eight million Americans now with the legalization of marijuana smoke pot, even though the government simultaneously says it's dangerous to smoke pot. Over 100 million Americans are considered obese, even though virtually every single thing you buy has a label on it telling you that this may cause obesity. As sinful creatures who live in a sinful world, we do not hear and respond to warnings well. We don't. Our flesh hears it. Our flesh understands it. But we continue to sin against God and live contrary to how we're supposed to live as those made in his image. Revelation chapter 18, again, brings a consummate warning to us. And it is is a warning infinitely worse than cigarettes, pot, and obesity combined, it is a warning that we do not want to miss or ignore this morning. 
And so if you've made it through Revelation up to chapter 18 and you've dismissed the warnings or you've heard them but taken them lightly, then let today be a very different response to this passage. Hear the warning with all the weight that God intends and then respond to it in obedience and love. Last week, chapter 17, if you were here with us, we saw Babylon. Babylon, again, the prostitute, the mother of what? Abominations, all abominations, and all impurities on the earth. We saw God judge her definitively once and for all. And she said, well, we're gonna, why are we coming back then to judgment? As God does, he recapitulates or he reiterates teachings. We're going to come back to her judgment here in chapter 18. Um, and we're going to look, I hope, we're going to see why this, the judgment's so severe, which it is. We're going to see how those who are participating in the life of the prostitute of Babylon, how they respond, which is grievous. And then we're going to hear the main point for the church, which is come out. Do not stay in Babylon. Do not live as a citizen of Babylon, lest you participate in her sins and share in her judgment. So that's what we're going to look at today. Um, chapter 18, if, if in your, your, uh, the translation that you have, or the version that you have, if it has lots of paragraphs, it's because lots of these passages are taken directly from the Old Testament. They're actually taken mostly from the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, and that's why they're set apart probably in your, in your particular translation. Um, John hears an angel, he experiences an angel, and he hears a voice from heaven, and they draw back on the Old Testament Babylon, the real nation of Babylon, that as you know, was the enemy of God's people. They destroyed uh, Judah in 586, but then God came back. God came back about 50 years later, and he destroyed Babylon in 539. And so the destruction of Babylon, the, the empire of the 6th century BC, becomes the type or the pattern or the template for God's judgment on all empires, the city of man moving all the way to the end when Christ comes again in glory. And so these references go back and forth of that time when God judged the actual nation itself. And so its, its fall becomes a pattern for us. Um, I, I want us this morning to see a couple basic things. One, I want us to see the severity of God's judgment and then the way out of it. The severity of God's judgment and the way out of it. And I want to do that by, by um, looking at three things from the passage. One, her judgment justified, that's the prostitute, that's the her. Her judgment justified, her judgment mourned, and her judgment escaped. Her judgment justified, her judgment mourned, and her judgment escaped. The theme of the sermon is this. God's present and future judgments require an immediate response. God's present and future judgments require an immediate response by you this morning. And you will respond one way or the other. Explicitly or implicitly, you will respond to this morning. So let's ask God that, to cause us to respond correctly. Amen? I can sense there's a lethargy on us right now, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, let, me, let me pause right now and ask the Holy Spirit to be gracious with us, to enable us to really listen and really hear. It makes sense, right, that if we're going to give a warning of the highest magnitude, that there'd be a tendency for us to go, I'm not going to listen. So I'm going to pause and pray right now. Father, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, cause us to be awake. Um, we do not want to hear this warning yet again and leave here not utterly transformed by it. Um, forgive us, Father, for um, possibly coming in here and treating this like just another Sunday. We, we know this is your word. We want to hear you speak. Cause us to do that, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, are you ready now? Point number one. All right, don't look so tired, okay? Don't look so tired. 
Um, Point number one, her judgment justified. Verse one, John writes, after this, so that's after the vision of chapter 17. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. So this angel's descent comes down, and it's so brilliant, the angel's so glorious, that it, it causes John and, of course, all those who are watching the angel to, to be set back a bit by the glory. It's intended, I think, to reveal the importance of what's about to be said, that this message is so important that this glorious angel comes from heaven to reveal it. Look at verse 2. And he, speaking of the angel, called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So the imagery we had last week of the great prostitute riding on the scarlet beast, the city of man is, that was destroyed by God, the, the angel declares, it is no more. So God's consummation, the end of human history. Look at the latter part of verse 2. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Now that language comes directly from the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, and it's a, a picture of a place that's become like hell on earth. You know, I know during Halloween we have these haunted houses, and the word haunt actually means a, a, a place to dwell or to reside or to gather. And we go to these places and, and we, we try to scare ourselves or be scared. Well, this is literally happening here uh, in space and time on planet Earth, these places that become full of demons and unclean spirits and unclean birds and detestable things. In other words, it's, it's God's warning that if a nation or a people or an empire continue to rebel against him, he will not only bring judgment, but he will make that place unlivable. And that, that's a warning that actually permeates the entire Old Testament. God saying to nations, both Israel and Judah and then other nations, that if you continue to live in rebellion against me, I will come against you, I will judge you, and I will leave you utterly devastated. Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, Tyre, Assyria... Of course, Babylon, Israel, Judah, even Jerusalem. In fact, Jeremiah, the prophet, when he was talking about Babylon, the real Babylon then coming against Judah, before that actually happened, he prophesied what was going to happen to Judah. And this is what Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 4.26. He said, I looked and behold, the fruitful land, that was Judah, speaking of Judah and Jerusalem, the land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So when God judges a people, a nation, or an empire, he levels that empire. He levels those people. He lays them to waste. And then he brings about a location where only demons and unclean beasts and unclean creatures can live. It's literally a picture of hell on earth. You say, well, why why such devastation? Why such severe judgment? Look at verse 3. He tells us why. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her. That's, that's Babylon, the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality. And of course, we, we know that now. We've trained ourselves to hear that. And he's not talking about literal sexual immorality, although that would be part of it. We're talking about idolatry. We're talking about false worship. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. They too are worshiping false gods. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And what we see here, you probably heard it as Kirk was reading, we see this understanding of idolatry and luxury. This idea of false worship and living in excess at the expense of others. This was Babylon's primary export to the world. 
You say, well, what did, what did Babylon contribute to mankind? It was importing false worship, exporting false worship, and exporting luxurious living at the expense of others. And that's why she was rightly called last week the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, giving idolatry and luxurious living to the nations, seducing them to turn away from God and to come and worship at the feet of the prostitute. In fact, wealth and luxury, it's mentioned four times in this chapter. And, and we say, well, wait a minute, wealth is not bad, even luxury isn't necessarily bad, and, and that's a true statement. We, we would not say that it is, but when wealth is acquired by illegitimate, unrighteous means, when it's used for unrighteous means, and we certainly know the power of wealth to distort and pervert a human being, we see that all the time here with the multiple billionaires that live in the West, Babylon was certainly uh, a country that acquired wealth through illegitimate means, through violent means, and it led to her arrogance. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. John said, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So another, another voice from heaven, either another angel or, or God himself, is now speaking. And he's saying, the reason that my punishment is so severe is because her sins are literally as high as the heavens. That, that metaphor is to magnify the, um, the judgment that is due. Now, a long time has transpired from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he hasn't come yet, or we certainly would not be here this morning. Babylons of various shapes and sizes, they have risen. They have subjugated the masses. They have persecuted God's people and then they have fallen. Their sins have piled up to the heavens. But God is saying here, I have not forgotten them just because nations and empires and individuals continue to rebel against me. Justice delayed is not justice denied. God is saying here, I will judge. And John is saying that judgment has come, that it's at hand in this particular teaching. Look at verse six. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. So it's eye for an eye here. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Verse 7. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. So justice for her false worship and her luxury will be torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. And so God says, as a just God, I'm going to give her the measure of judgment that she justly deserves for her idolatry, for her luxurious living. He even uses hyperbole here. I hope you pick that up. A double portion of the punishment by God to Babylon is not, does not mean that God is unjust. I mean, God can only give what is just. It's magnifying the extreme nature of Babylon's rebellion against God. So extreme, so severe, that the judgment will seem like a double portion. Look at the latter part of verse 7. I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Not only are her sins piled up to heaven, but she has unmitigated arrogance before her creator. You know what she's saying? She's saying, I'm untouchable. I can sin without consequence. 
I can seduce the nations without consequence. I will never be a widow. I am a queen. I will never be judged. I can abuse my wealth and my power to bring myself glory and honor without consequence. Verse 8. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So because she has seduced the nations into worshiping false gods, because she's lived a luxurious life at the expense of others, because she's persecuted God's church, because her sins rise up to the heavens, and even as they do, she claims to be a queen who will not be held accountable by her creator, severe and swift punishment comes. Death, mourning, famine, and fire. Those are all descriptions of what? Eternal judgment, eternal damnation will be the the end for Babylon because of her rebellion. She will be burned up. Now, if you know your Levitical law, in the the book of Moses, um, under Leviticus chapter 21, one of the consequences for a priest's daughter who engaged in prostitution was to be burned by fire. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 9, if a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father, she must be burned in the fire. Now mankind's prostituting itself by worshiping other gods, by living and serving and loving most the things of this world rather than the one who made them is a disgrace to our heavenly father and such judgment would be justly fire, death and mourning and fire. In other words, the fundamental sin of Babylon is idolatry. The fundamental sin of Babylon is idolatry. It's giving glory to herself. It's giving glory to others rather than giving glory to the one true living God. There is no greater sin, my beloved. There is nothing more heinous to the glorious God of all creation than for you to give glory even a little bit to yourself or someone else rather than to him He deserves, we know this, he deserves what? All glory and all praise and all honor for how long? Forever and ever. And then everybody says, amen. He's God. He deserves the glory. To take glory or honor or worth from the God to whom it belongs because of who he is and what he has done to ascribe it to something or someone else, especially yourself, is the most heinous of sins. Even in our fallen, self-glorifying world, we, we recoil when this happens in our own lives. Maybe you've had that coworker at work who took credit for your good work. Maybe they got a promotion. Maybe they got a raise because they stole your work. Certainly, you've all been in a, a student group, a cooperative learning exercise where you and three or four other students have been charged with exercising a particular task in class, and there's always that one in the group, right? There's always the one who says, you know what, I don't need to do anything. It's a group grade. So if I do nothing and we get an A, I get an A, right? And that, that just gets us, doesn't it? I mean, we hate that. They're going to take glory from our efforts. So we, we know that it's, it's something that is it's violent. Um, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, when um, Ed Litton was nominated to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, shortly after he was elected, they found out that 
he had made a practice of plagiarizing sermons from the previous SBC president, J.D. Greer, literally having word-for-word dialogues. And, and the SBC and the world was rightly upset by it, saying this is grievous, and it was. He was stealing glory for himself from God's word. He said, well, if, if it's that bad with us, if it's that bad that sinners would steal glory from other sinners, how much worse stealing glory from a thrice holy God? How much worse taking honor and value that belongs to God and bringing it to yourself or casting it on someone else? God said clearly, Isaiah 42a, I am the Lord, that is my name, listen with all your might. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. God is very jealous about his own glory. And God's people should be jealous about his glory too. So first we see that God's judgments against Babylon and all those aligned with Babylon, they are fair, they're just, they're severe because Babylon is taking glory from the one true glorious God. Now you might object and you might say, well, this, is, this is like a, it almost seems anecdotal in its approach. You're putting this, this blanket upon the whole world that all nations and all, all tribes and all peoples and all languages are, are going to be subject to this. And you might say, well, certainly some will see, some will see Babylon destroyed and they will cry out for mercy. They, they don't want to experience that judgment too. Some will turn, you think. Point number two, her judgment mourned. The mourning of the judgment of Babylon. John reveals three distinct groups here. We have kings, We have merchants of the earth and we have merchants of the sea. And he gives us just a little snapshot into each of their hearts. And we see how they respond to God justly and severely judging Babylon. Of course, then it was Rome and it's been any empire throughout the history of man. Look at the kings of the earth and how they respond. Verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality think idolatry and lived in luxury with her, with the prostitute, with Babylon, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. So she's been judged, and the smoke of of that judgment is now rising up to the heavens. Verse 10. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So the kings of the earth who had been in bed with Babylon worshiping the idols, enjoying the luxury, certainly forsaking their duties as sovereign kings over sovereign nations because they had prostituted themselves. They weep and they wail. But did you notice why they're weeping and wailing? They're not broken over Babylon. They're not concerned about the people of Babylon. They're broken and they're mourning because that means they will no longer be prosperous. They're no longer going to ride the coattails of Babylon. And so they, they stand far off, <laughs> rightfully so, Because they probably know judgment that she experienced, we will experience too because we were part and parcel with her idolatry and her luxurious living. And they say in one hour, that judgment came. In other words, it took place so rapidly that those who believed her to be invincible were proven wrong. Look at verse 11. The merchants have a similar response. The merchants of the earth Weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. So right off we get it. Why are they weeping and mourning? It's not because Babylon is no more. It's because no longer is their cargo going to be purchased. All the luxuries that Babylon needed to exalt herself, 
all the luxuries that she exported to the world for self-glory, to get man to glorify himself, they will be no more. The gold, the silver, the fine linens, the ivory, the marble, the spices, even slaves, no more. It'll suddenly stop because Babylon is no more. She has been judged. Look at verse 14. The fruit for which your soul longs, speaking of, the, of, of, of Babylon, all these luxuries associated with the, the good life, the fruit for which your soul long has gone from you and your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. So this is a permanent judgment. That luxurious life that she enjoyed so long has been judged by God never to return. And again, the merchants don't rush to her aid. Look at verse 15. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Look at verse 16. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. That's the description from last week, is it not? Of the prostitute riding the scarlet beast, identical from chapter 17. It says in verse 17 here, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid to waste. All the wealth of the world system all the power, all the luxury, all the false worship, completely leveled by the living God. And then the merchants of the sea chime in and we hear the same thing again. Look at the latter part of verse 17. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke burning up. What city was like the city? What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept. That was a a sign of mourning in the first century Mediterranean culture, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. And so again, they stand far off. They're not gonna go to help. Um, and they realize that now their riches will be no more. The great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich, grew rich by her wealth, would grow rich no longer. Now in John's day, those vessels would have been tr- bringing all the goods and services from the east to the west, from the east to, to Rome. Certainly throughout the centuries, it would be all merchants and all companies that are, that are importing and exporting goods and services around the world at the expense of righteousness, those who are engaging in, in this profit, um, knowing that it's evil or detrimental. Certainly, you know, when I was thinking of examples, there's certainly China and their response to Russia following the invasion of Ukraine, that they came and said, we're going to support your economy. That would be a prime example of one country supporting another at the expense of righteousness. So John provides for us with these three groups, the kings and the merchants of the earth and then the merchants of the sea. I believe a few collective characteristics of mankind that are particularly dark um, that I, I think we can identify with pretty well. The first was their willingness to compromise for the sake of personal gain. Right? All three, the kings, the merchants of the earth, and the merchants of the sea, they were all willing to compromise and participate in the prostitutes' idolatry and luxurious living in order to gain something for themselves. The kings participated in it. The merchants participated in it, knowing full well that it was wrong, but it was good for them. Therefore, they decided we'll keep on doing it. My beloved, any time, any time 
you enjoy a benefit, you enjoy a gain of some kind at the expense of righteousness. We are now aligned with the ways of Babylon. We are now living in alignment with the prostitute. When it's easier to, to get something knowing that righteousness will be forsaken, now you're no longer thinking as a citizen of the kingdom of God. So when that cashier gives you too much in change and you decide to keep it, because you think, well, it was their fault. They gave it to me. I, I didn't take it out of their hand. And you don't return it. That's gaining at the expense of righteousness. When you download or you listen to that music or those movies that you do not own, that is, that's stealing. You know that, right? You're, you're personally profiting at the expense of righteousness. Or maybe some of those movies you download that, that have imagery and scenes that are truly ungodly. And, and you are profiting from that. As the, as the narrative goes out, there's so much now. It seems like a, a movie cannot, have, cannot go two hours without having some illicit sex scene of some kind in it. Now remember, you're watching two human beings engage in immoral behavior in the midst of a movie for your enjoyment. Certainly at the expense of righteousness. Even more subtly, my beloved, how many Christians profit in their own life, literally profit in their life because they're not faithfully giving to the work of the gospel. And I I know we rarely ever talk about this from the pulpit, but giving is an act of worship, right? How many today, how many Christians profit by saying, I'm not going to give it all or just give a little bit back to God? In 2021, only 13% of evangelicals said they regularly give tithes and offerings to the church. 13% of evangelicals. And the evangelical giving nationwide was less than 1% of the evangelical's annual household income. Less than 1%. You say, well, why are you bringing that up? Because God's word tells us to give, right? So if we're not giving, that's stealing. That's stealing from God. We're profiting at the expense of righteousness. And oftentimes, we just use our position, right, to try to manipulate or to get something we want. I'm sure you remember a few years ago how several prominent celebrities used their power and their money to get their children into schools that their children could not qualify on their own. I'm sure you remember that. One parent actually attempted to justify her actions and she said, I was acting out of love for my child. That's not love, now is it? Not love at all. Compromising righteousness for personal gain is the way of Babylon, not the way of the city of God. Those are Babylon's laws and Babylon's rules, not ours. There was something else here that came out that I thought was interesting. It's their collective misunderstanding of what is considered to be great. Did you notice that? All three say, you great city, you great city. What city was like the great city of Babylon? They all cry out about her greatness. Well, what was it that made Babylon great? What was it in their eyes that made her such a great city? Was it her deceptive beauty? Was it the worship of idols? that allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do? Was it her luxury and ease and affirmation of that which is evil? Was it her persecution of the Christians? All these things hateful to God. It certainly was her worldliness and her love for the things of this world that compelled them to say, as those who love the world too, oh, you great city. They weren't drawn, my beloved, to the just The kings and the merchants weren't drawn to the humble and to the simple. They did not want to associate with those who were honest. They did not want to associate with those who would do things fairly. 
in their worldview, greatness meant power. Greatness meant possessions. Greatness meant living in luxury, having popularity and influence. And you hear that and you think, wow, that sounds a lot like the Western world, does it not? Power, money, possessions, influence, popularity. I mean, just the the term, influencer. That's a new term, you know that. Go back a few years and that term was not there. What do you do for a living? Well, I'm an influencer. What is that? That's not a real job. And yet it can make a lot of money, especially if you're influencing well to live as the world lives. How contrary to the calling of God's people. How contrary. In Matthew chapter 20, if you remember, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, do you remember um, James and John's mother comes to Jesus and she asks Jesus, I want my sons, when you ascend to the throne, I want my sons to be seated on your right and your left. I want them to be in positions of power with you. Listen to Jesus' response and then ask yourself, do you live? Well, just listen. Jesus says to her, you do not know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones, so here's the image of greatness, the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, and he's talking to his disciples now, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So true greatness, my beloved, is the opposite of the way the world views it. True greatness in the city of God, it's not about money, it's not about power, it's not about being an influencer. It is about being a servant. It is about caring for the least and the last and the lost in your life. It is loving. It means truly loving others above yourself, putting God first, putting people first. In fact, Jesus says to be first in his city, you want to be number one in the city, you want the key of the city of God, you have to become a slave to all. Serving and loving so they, they compromised righteousness for personal gain. They had a completely backwards understanding of what greatness was. And I'll, I'll give you one more quickly. They mourned, but they mourned the wrong things. Did you notice what they mourned? Each one, the kings, the merchants of the earth, the merchants of the sea, they all wept and they all mourned. But they weren't weeping and mourning because of their love for the people of Babylon or the fact that, that city was no more. Each of them loved because of what they had lost. And what they lost were the things of this world that they loved so much. They were mourning not because they lost God or they lost people or they lost family. They lost power. They lost money. They lost possession. All of them because they were riding upon the evils of the prostitute. When we talk about Babylon and we think about it as Rome, or maybe one of the empires of the 20th century. That's not entirely wrong, but it's also not entirely right. You say, well, where is the great city of man today? Where is, where is Babylon today? Can we identify it? Can we, can we get out a newspaper and find Babylon today? The city of man, Babylon, has been manifest. Certainly in John's day, it was Rome. 
We had the literal Babylon in the Old Testament. I would say any empire or nation throughout human history that's risen up, subjugated people, persecuted God, committed idolatry would fit that category. But these are all manifestations of the outworking of where the city of Babylon truly resides. And you know where that is. It's not in Africa or the the United States or Europe. It is in the heart of man. The city of Babylon, the prostitute, the harlot, resides in the heart of every man, woman, and child. Babylon represents sin and false worship and desiring luxury for self-glory rather than worshiping and glorifying the one true living God. That city resides in us. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In fact, we could argue that everybody begins life as a citizen of the city of Babylon. Her rules, her laws, her way of life. Well, what is that? That's real simple. It's serve thyself. It's worship thyself. It's pursue whatever is best for thyself. Chase after all the deceptive beauty of this world for thyself. Those are the rules of Babylon. Which means, my beloved, if, the, if God is going to judge Babylon this extremely, and we believe he's going to be, because we've been told that now for several chapters, and, and Babylon is in the heart of every man, woman, and child, that means this judgment, listen, is yours too, unless you flee. The judgment that God has described to Babylon, if Babylon resides in the heart of mankind, then he judges mankind. The question is, will you experience that judgment, or will you come out? Will you get out? Last point, I pray your ears are rightly pricked. We've seen her judgment justified. We've seen her judgment mourned by the kings and the merchants. Last point, her judgment escaped. So if this judgment, although extreme, is fair, if it is just, and God is going to justly judge the entire city of man without exception, then the only way to be saved from that judgment is to come out of that city. It's to get out of it. Right? You heard Kirk read from the story of Lot right? as God was pronounced judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, dis- he didn't just leave. Let me read to you briefly again. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16, three of the most profound words in the Old Testament. But Lot lingered he stayed he knew the judgment was coming but he lingered so the man these two angels they literally seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand they had to take them out themselves and they brought them they brought him out and set him outside the city and then verse 17 it said this as they brought them out one said escape for your life Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. We know what happened to Lot's wife. She looked back. She longed for the life of Babylon, and she was turned to a pillar of salt. The exhortation is simple. You must do the same. This call is to God's people. If we don't want to be swept away by the judgment of Babylon, then we must come out of Babylon. Go back to verse 4 with me. Go back to verse 4. So after describing the magnitude of this judgment that God is going to exercise upon the city of man and, and rightly concluding that the city of man dwells in the heart of every man, woman, and child in rebellion against God, this voice from heaven comes. Look at verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins 
lest you share in her plagues. I think that is God speaking. He identifies his people as his people. But it is a warning of the highest order. It is a call for God's people to flee the destruction that is to come. The destination of the great prostitute. According to the voice, to stay is to what? To participate in her sins. To stay is to share in her plagues. You say, well, what were those again? Death, mourning, famine, fire. All descriptions of eternal damnation. To stay is to experience death, mourning, famine, and fire in your life as God judges you for remaining in the city you knew he was going to judge. The question is, how, how do you do this? I mean, if the city of man is, is not just the manifestation of these evil empires over human history, if the city of man truly dwells in the heart of people, then how are we to come out of it? How do we come out of ourselves? Because that is the question. How do I get out of myself so that I'm not judged as myself? And once you get out, where are you supposed to go? Where are you going? Throughout the Bible, there, there's this theme of two cities. Obviously, Augustine wrote the city of God with these two cities in mind. The city of man, Babylon, which is destined for destruction, and the city of God, which is comprised of God's people who do what? who serve and worship and love the Lord. Those are the two thematic cities we see throughout the New Testament. And you could argue you see throughout human history as well. And since we all start off as citizens of Babylon, then somehow, somehow, we, our citizenship must be transferred out of Babylon and into the city of God. Some transaction has to take place. If we stay there, we perish. And just as, listen, just as God had to, the two angels, had to grab Lot and his wife and his two daughters and literally rip them out, so too does he have to with us because we linger. Our flesh lingers. And so God must come. He must come to us. He must take us and he must remove us from this city. In other words, it requires a great work. I would say a greater work than the angels physically removing Lot and his wife and his two daughters. A greater work because what God must do, if Babylon is in the heart of man, then God must what? He must change the heart. He's got to go inside. He can't just physically move you around from place to place. He must actually go inside and he must change your Babylonian lover heart with a new heart. He must give you a new heart with new desires that no longer want to live as a citizen of Babylon. A new heart and new desires that actually begin to hate the ways and the laws and the rules of Babylon. You hate it and you don't want to be there anymore. A heart that actually begins to love the city of God, love the king of that city, love the ways of that city. In other words, you need the prophecy that was given to the prophet Ezekiel by God after the Babylonians took Judah, God said this, I will give you, speaking of the time of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Before Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, he was talking to the disciples and he was comforting them and he was saying, I'm, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's gonna do what? It's gonna give you a new heart. 
Listen to what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And they're thinking, how do we keep your commandments without a new heart? And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The spirit of what? The spirit of truth. God the Father and God the Son send to his people that we might walk in truth. You see, after Jesus procured our salvation, and he did, and he had to, by paying the punishment we justly deserved for our allegiance to Babylon, for living and breathing as citizens of Babylon, by experiencing on the cross, what? The death, the mourning, the famine, and the fire, fully, that we justly deserved. He was treated, what? He was treated as the great prostitute. He suffered the full measure of the torment and the mourning that we rightly deserved for our idolatry, for our luxurious living, for our loving ourselves more than we love God. But when he did that, my beloved, when he paid that price on the cross for our sins, he did something extraordinary. He opened a door. In John chapter 10, as Jesus is teaching about his role as the great shepherd of God's sheep, he says this, John 10 verse 9, he says, I am what? I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. In other words, after suffering the ravages of sin, he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and then opened the door to what? To the city of God. He opened it so that we could enter, so that we could have access. And not just access into the city, but a desire to come into the city. Remember, we get new hearts And we get new desires given to us by the Holy Spirit so that we come into the city and we want to worship God and we want to follow Jesus and we want to live obedient lives. We want to know the word and we want to live according to God's laws and not the laws of Babylon. Complete and total transformation. Paul wrote this and made it clear in Titus chapter three. Listen, Paul said, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's when Christ came, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now listen, how did he do it? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Jesus Christ became a man. He entered the city of man, not to destroy it, but to call men out of it. He will destroy it when he comes again in glory, but not yet. Not yet. There's still time And he does that by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He does it by fulfilling Ezekiel 36, by giving us new hearts and new desires that want nothing to do with Babylon and everything to do with God. You know that if you've been born again, if the Spirit dwells in you, if you know Christ, you know that. It's not that your flesh doesn't fight. Your flesh fights to stay in the world. Your flesh fights for the things of Babylon. But you know that your desire, your ultimate desire in Christ is God. It's the kingdom of God, it's the city of God, it's the ways of God. And so you know that you've been changed by him. Now you might be thinking, okay, I I see how God transforms us from citizens of Babylon to citizens of his kingdom, but what does it look like really on the outside? If I'm transformed, what does it look like on a day-to-day basis? How does it look for me to no longer be in myself and my flesh, but to walk in? in the spirit you say well does it does coming out mean that we have to be like the monks of the middle ages you know they literally fled they took a passage like this that we need to flee these cities and they went out to the desert places and they had their own little communities 
I don't think that was the best way to approach the gospel. Um, doesn't mean you leave a place like California or New York or Washington, that you flee the darkness of a Babylon, an apparent progressive Babylon, and you go to other places like Texas or Tennessee or Idaho to less, I guess, Babylonian-like states. Is that what this is saying? Flee from this. We laugh, but many are doing it today. Many Christians and churches are leaving places like this to flee to these supposedly less Babylonian-like places. I don't think that's what Christ was teaching. I don't think that's what this passage is saying. He says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So there is a coming out, but we know what Jesus actually said when it comes to our being in the world but not of the world. Certainly you remember in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, right before his arrest and right before his crucifixion, listen to what he prayed to the Father. He said, I have given them, speaking of his disciples, and you to come. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In other words, through faith, their citizenship had already been transferred. They were no longer citizens of Babylon. They were now citizens of the kingdom of God in the city of God. And then Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. What? Did you hear that? Jesus prayed to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. That means remove them from the city of man here. New York, Washington, Idaho, Texas, Tennessee. doesn't matter where you go. He asks that they are protected. He says, keep them from the evil one. Protect them while they're here. Protect my people while they're in the city of man. Doing what? Well, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to be preservation and illumination of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to share the gospel with all our Babylonian neighbors, are we not? Someone did with you. We're supposed to love our Babylonian neighbors and we're supposed to pray for them even when they persecute us, Jesus says, even to the point of death. We're supposed to forsake our idols as we live in the world. We're supposed to forsake living in the lap of luxury as we live in this world. We're supposed to commit a life to Christ to serve the Lord, to serve others, to seek and save the lost as Jesus did. And then Jesus prayed in verse 17 of chapter 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And there you have it. Coming out of Babylon and coming into the city of God is living a life of obedient faith. It is living in accordance with the truth of God's word. It is knowing his word and submitting to it. It is living for Christ and the city of God rather than yourself and the city of man. So unlike the kings and the merchants who mourned over what they lost when evil was judged, Christians are to live a very, very different life. In Christ, you will refuse personal gain at the expense of righteousness. You'll say no. You'll say no, whether it's small or large. You'll say no, my gain through unrighteousness is hateful to God. It means your view of what makes someone or something great will be different than that of the world rather than money or power or luxury or self-glory. Your understanding of greatness will be someone who loves the Lord. Your understanding of greatness will be someone who actually follows Jesus Christ, is humble, and wants to be obedient to God. 
your understanding of greatness will be measured by someone's relationship to the living God, not to the world. And unlike our kings and merchants, you, you'll mourn too. As a Christian, you ought to mourn, but you won't mourn what they mourn. They, they mourned losing prophets when evil was destroyed. You'll mourn, if you know Christ, the brokenness of sin that's still in your life. You'll mourn that rightly. If you know Christ, you will, you will mourn all those who have yet to enter through the door. You'll mourn all those who say no to the glorious gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ and remain citizens of Babylon. You'll mourn them. You'll mourn the brokenness of this world. Certainly it must be hard for you to come to church, is it not, on a Sunday and see literally the tens of thousands around you that are living a life of Babylon? It must cause you to mourn some as you come to worship the living God. A brokenness over this world and the judgment that is fast approaching. You'll mourn, I hope, your crucified king. You'll mourn the hideous truth that the Son of God had to give his life to redeem a sinner like you. You'll mourn that, and you rightly should, that your sin and your state is so bad that Christ had to pay with his own life. You'll mourn these things, my beloved, but you'll mourn with joy. You'll mourn with joy, and that's not an oxymoron. You'll mourn with joy because in your heart you'll know in Christ that mourning is not your end. Mourning is not your end. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. By God's grace, you've been called and chosen to come out of the city, no longer participating in its sins and no longer subject to its judgment. By God's grace, you've been given a new heart with new desires to come out and to live your life now as a life of faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved you and gave himself for you. It is a life that brings God glory, not yourself. It is a life lived for others, not your own luxury and material possessions. God's judgment of the city of man is severe and it is just. It will come in a single hour when no one expects it. I beg you to heed these words from Revelation 18. Heed them this morning. Come out of her today before it is too late. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our complacency. Truth be told, much of our rebellion is just in our day-to-day lives. We're so busy with, with work and school and home that we find our, ourselves still living as citizens of Babylon even though we claim Christ. I pray, Lord, for a spiritual wake-up call for myself and my brothers and sisters that we would see the darkness of the days in which we live, we would see the severity and justice of the judgment that is coming. We would know that it's near, Father. I pray that we would not be taken by surprise, but that you would bless us by calling each and every one of us out of that city, out of that judgment, and into Christ. For anyone here who does not know Christ, I pray you would do that. 
For those of us who do, Father, I pray we would identify those willful, unrepentant sins in our lives. We would identify this morning and we would realize that those are the laws and those are the ways of Babylon and we would turn from them, really turn from them, Father, not just lift up a prayer and then go right back to them, but in our being born again by the power of your Spirit, live holy lives. Do this for us, Father. We need you to. We need you to. I ask that you would bless Christ's community with, with an answer of yes to those prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel, You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.